Uh, today we're looking at an obscure little passage in the book of Judges that originally I had planned on not doing anything with other than in one of the other messages just saying one word here or there. But I feel like I can do a whole message on one verse. What do you think? Um, I got four points on one verse. Uh, and so I have a, a lot of resources out at the Connection Center. Uh, two of them um, are, are out there related more to kind of the broader topic. The one by Barry Webb is actually just his section from his commentary on the one verse. Uh, he does a good job explaining all that I'm going to try to explain today, and he makes a good application at the end. There's another article by John uh, MacArthur that is on worldliness and how uh, worldliness has really crept in, and he really draws a lot of parallels that I think you would find interesting between the time of the judges and our time, when everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes, and there's no such thing as truth. There's no objective truth that we can appeal to, and once that happens, uh, we're in a very difficult place, and so I want to encourage you to read those two. I've got a few more resources I'll mention in just a moment, but today we're talking about this guy named Shamgar. One verse on Shamgar. There's another verse that, uh, that reminds us that he did some things, so two verses in the entire Bible on Shamgar, and um, Shamgar is going to be a guy who delivers, but like so many in the book of Judges, he's not the person you expect, but he's really, really, really not the person you expect. With the Shamgar story, God answers the cries for deliverance in the most unexpected ways. And I don't know if you've ever experienced that, where you've been in a place where you needed something from the Lord, and maybe you were even praying about it. Other people were praying for you about it, and he answered in a way you never could have dreamed of, maybe even completely opposite of what you dreamed of. Um, I happened to be part of a text stream yesterday that um, I'm going to read part of it to you and change the names to preserve the guilty. Um, But here's, uh, here's a text stream I was a part of. None of these were my texts. I was just reading them. I prayed this morning that the rain would be a gift for you and would slow down the day and give you a chance to rest and to feel washed and nourished for the days to come. Hope you're getting to relax and watch the game with your family. Now, what a nice sentiment. I mean, that's just, you should know the person who wrote that text. Here's the response that came back. LOL, God answers in mysterious and unexpected ways. The hogs are losing. My daughter's in timeout due to tiredness and coming down off of a sugar rush. My husband is gone. So I am now listening to the quiet rain by candlelight. <laughs> God answered, but with the hogs losing and a daughter in timeout and uh, just sitting alone listening to the rain. Sometimes God answers that way. Uh, you may be expecting one thing, God answers in a different way. That's what happens with Ehud, and, and um, it's what happens again here with Shamgar, God answering in a very unexpected way. And so one verse, here's the verse. After Ehud, who we talked about last week, came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He too saved Israel. It's all we know. His name is Shamgar. He's the son of Anath. He struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad, and he saved Israel. God used him to be the Savior. Who in the world is this guy? What are we talking about? Well, a little bit of information just to start with. He uses an ox goad. 
It's a very interesting word, maladma. Um, the, the word lamad in Hebrew means to teach. And this is a stick that is used to teach the oxen where to go. You goad them. Literally, you've got, a, you've got about a six or eight foot stick, and you're using it to train the oxen. You're, you're teaching them. Uh, it, if I were to kind of roughly translate, it's for teaching. An ox goat is for teaching. Uh, but it's, it's clearly the stick that they use to, to poke on the oxen to keep them moving in the direction you wanted them to move. Well, Shamgar's got one of these things, um, and he kills 600 Philistines with it. Now, you might find that um, unbelievable, uh, and it's, it actually is unbelievable if it weren't for the supernatural reality going on in this. We actually don't know how long it took um, Shamgar to wipe out the enemy with his ox code. Um, it may have been in one battle, like, like Bruce Lee. Um, it, it may have been over a period of time. We just don't know. We just know he was good with an ox goad, um, and he wiped out 600 Philistine warriors. Um, the clip is a little violent. I mean, I, I understand. We have a mess on the stage, including toilets, from last week's message. We, we have a violent scene being portrayed, but this is the nature of the book of Judges. It's a violent book. Um, when Dr. Michelle Knight was here and she talked with our home church leaders, she talked about the violence of the conquest. And I just want to review one of the things that she talked about. And, and that is that the Bible argues that these events really happened. This, this is a true story. Um, supernatural empowerment, yes, but these are real events. These are not mythic um, fairy tales. Um, the conquest, wiping out of 600 Philistines, wiping out the Ammonites, the, uh, the Moabites, wiping them out, um, it's not about any racial or national superiority. Um, it's about a moral purging. Um, these were uh, people that God had patiently waited for hundreds of years for their sins to get to a point where God said they're worthy of extermination. Um, it was highly destructive. Yes, it's a violent thing. Um, it, it, was, it was limited, though. God just didn't say wipe out everybody. He, he, he wanted them to wipe out the strategic areas so that the strongholds would be taken away and they could occupy the land. And, and literally, the, the verbiage is mostly drive them out. If you'll take these strongholds, then the people will, will go away. Um, th- this is an alternative to actually making covenants with them because they knew that what actually really happened, God knew, if you don't drive them out, you're going to make covenants with them. And if you make covenants with them, then their culture, their religion, their idolatry is going to seep in. And so, so the Bible's predominant language, we're going to read one passage where it, it is to exterminate the Amalekites. But the predominant language is drive them out because I don't want them to be an influence on you. And this is nothing new. God's pattern throughout human history is to raise up nations. God has been doing that. Um, he, he, he brought the Egyptians and the Babylonians, and he uses even these evil nations, he uses them for his purpose. Um, and, and the Bible recognizes throughout human history that, that God is in charge of all of this. God is sovereign, not just over our salvation and our daily life and those kind of things. God is sovereign over national, international events. He's controlling and in charge of all of that. Um, and, and God will use evil nations to judge other nations, but then he'll judge those nations. That's one of the patterns you see. Um, 
it's it's uh, it's really one of the one of the prophets raises this question. God, how can you let Israel get away with all of this? And he says, I'm not going to let them get away with it. I'm going to use the Babylonians to judge them. He says, why are you using the Babylonians? He says, because you need to be judged and I'm going to get them too. God is God is orchestrating all of this. Um, and, and as they are exterminating these people, um, there are a number of exceptions, including Rahab, Achan, Ruth, Othniel, um, and uh, perhaps Shamgar that we're talking about, who are exceptions to this extermination. They're part of the, the nations that are out there. Um, and so, yes, this is a violent time, but the violence is because God is so serious about the culture not infiltrating you. And God is orchestrating this and asking them to take care of it. Now, to the degree that they don't take care of it, the culture infiltrates and they become idolatrous. But in the midst of the oppressions that come with not driving out these other nations, God raises up guys like Shamgar. Um, he's an obscure judge. I mean, I can't imagine when I um, started working through the book of Judges that any of you were like, oh, I can't wait for the Shamgar message. Um, maybe you were. I was going to skip it. But when I got here, I thought, no, I, I can't do that. Um, so, so I want to make four points in this, and we'll elaborate on some other things throughout here. But the first point I think we're going to see is that God's people are often oppressed and seemingly disarmed by the world. Um, note, Shamgar is using an ox goad. Do you know why he's using an ox goad? He doesn't have any other weapons. <laughs> the Philistines have taken all their weapons away. That uh, they they are having to make um, implements out of farm tools. Um, there's a great story of a Czech hero. His name is Jan Zizka, one-eyed Zizka, and and um, he um, is a hero in the Czech Republic. One of the things he did is he taught the farmers how to use their wagons in battle. Um, they didn't have access to um, to the weapons that were available. He is actually the first person who figured out how to use gunpowder in, in a battle. Um, you have to be creative if there's powers that are overpowering you. And they get overpowered so that they don't have weapons. They've been disarmed by the world. They, they feel like, okay, the, the Hittites, they've got all the iron chariots. The Philistines have all of the swords and all of the walled cities. We've got nothing. Um, and sometimes you feel that way. In, in chapter 3, let me just show you how this looks on a map. Here's, here's some verses from chapter 3. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, so they, he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathayim, king of Aaron Narahayim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. Okay? We talked about this passage, um, but just note, um, this guy's from Aram Narahayim. Uh, when we were talking about Ehud and Eglon. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over them, getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join them. Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. Now in our verse today, after Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He too saved Israel. Um, in chapter 3, we've been introduced... Uh, to a guy, double wicked dude, from Aram Narahayim, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Amalekites, and the Philistines. I'm going to put them on a map, okay? Here they are on a map. 
They have completely surrounded the nation. In chapter 3, what he does very cleverly is he shows the enemy are all around. Aramner Hiram is from the north, from probably up in Mesopotamia, Babylon, uh, Acadia, up in that area. Um, the Philistines are over on the coast, what we would now call the Gaza Strip. By the way, these areas that, that are in dispute and where all the battles, they are in dispute today. They've never stopped fighting over all of this. Uh, where Moab and Ammon are, um, that's really the Golan Heights. Um, all of these areas are still in dispute. But do you see how clearly they are surrounded? Aaron Arahayim, who's from the north, the Philistines um, on the west coast, Moab and Ammon on the eastern border on the other side of the Jordan River, leaves only one other group, the Amalekites, and the Amalekites are nomadic. They don't have an area. They're just wandering around all through that, picking up whatever idolatry they can and, and um, conquering and kind of raiding as, as warriors throughout the whole area. They are surrounded by the enemy and disarmed. And then there are marauding Amalekites moving through their land. Has anybody ever felt that way? Anybody feel like Christians are that way? We're surrounded on every hand and, and we're disarmed. What tools do we have to use? How can we fight back? Um, well, let me talk about these guys for a minute. I'm going to talk about the bad guys that are here. There's some handouts out at the Connection Center. Um, I've got one on the Amalekites. We don't know a lot about them, and they, they uh, are completely destroyed um, because God eventually says they have to be destroyed. They were so wicked. Um, a handout on the Amorites, the Moabites, and the Philistines. I'm going to give you just a brief summary of each group, okay? The Amalekites, nomadic Bedouins, they're warriors, they're invaders, um, they're probably in uh, competition constantly with the Israelites because of the fact that the Israelites, once they enter into the land, they, they are kind of like the Amalekites. All these other uh, people were residents in the land already for the most part. Um, they were already there. And so the Amalekites are kind of roaming around. It's like, who are these other guys roaming around? And so the Amalekites want to get rid of the Israelites. Um, and they were to be annihilated. Here's a passage from much later. Um, Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over uh, the, his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go attack the Amal Amalekites and dis totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them, put them to death, men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Pretty harsh, I get it. But the Amalekites were these Bedouin warriors that were attacking constantly, and um, they were um, basically spreading the idolatry of every different tribe you can imagine. And God says, you've got to get rid of them. He actually told Joshua to get rid of them. He's now telling Saul, uh, oh, 450 years later to get rid of them. They needed to be gotten rid of. Then there's the Ammonites. The Ammonites are the descendants of Lot and his daughter. If you'll remember, when, Sod when Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed, Lot leaves with his wife and his two daughters, and his wife turns back. She turns to a pillar of salt. Lot continues, and Lot and his daughters are in the cave. They're watching Sodom and Gomorrah be destroyed. They probably are thinking they're the last three people on earth, and they're um, wondering how life is going to continue. And so... Um, um, the girls get their dad drunk, and uh, they 
both sleep with him on consecutive nights, and, and two children are born. This is the Ammonites is one of those, the descendants of Lot and his daughter. Uh, they settle in north of the Dead Sea on the other side of the Jordan River. They're a constant opposition uh, to Israelites. They worship Molech and are famous for child sacrifice. Now, you may be thinking, oh, that's just so horrible. How could anyone sacrifice children? Um, let me read the verse, and then I want to talk about that a little bit more. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The older daughter had a son, and she named him Moab. We're going to talk about them in a minute. He is the father of the Moabites. The younger daughter also had a son, and she named him Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites of today. This is about the Ammonites. He followed Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. Why is the god of the Ammonites so detestable? Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech, for you must not profane the name of the Lord, I am the God, I am of God, I am the Lord. Say to the Israelites, any Israelite or foreigner residing in Israel who sacrifices any of his children to Molech is to be put to death. The members of the community are to stone him. They built high places for Baal in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to sacrifice their sons and daughters to Molech. Though I never commanded, nor did it enter my mind, that they should do such a detestable thing and make Judah sin. Um, boy, this is a horrible thing as we're thinking about the Israelites, God's people, are actually being um, sucked into this idolatry um, and, and so desirous of succeeding in the world that they would say, um, in order to be successful, I'm going to sacrifice my firstborn child to this God, and if I sacrifice that, he'll bless me the rest of my life. He'll help me get ahead if I'll sacrifice my, my child. Um, and before we are um, casting too much judgment Think about how many children have been sacrificed so that their families could be successful through abortion in our country. Our nation uh, has become guilty of child sacrifice for the same reasons that the Israelites did. The culture says, sacrifice your child so that you can get a better opportunity. Um. These threats are still around. I think there's some subtle other ways that we sacrifice our children to the culture. Think about where the places you send your children to and when, when you just let them go out into the culture. And, and I think you're sending them off to be sacrificed. And the judgment of the Lord is deserved on a nation that will do such things. The Moabites. They're a little bit different. They're the other descendants of Lot and his daughter. They settle south of the Dead Sea. They're also in constant opposition. Um, they worship Chemosh, and, and their big problem was prostitution and immorality. Um, just um, their, their worship was full of sexual promiscuity, um, so much so that in Numbers 25, when um, one of the kings is trying to curse the Israelites, and he hires a prophet named Balaam, 
and Balaam can't curse. He's trying to curse the Israelites, but every time he tries to curse them, he blesses them. And finally, Balaam says, listen, I'm not going to be able to curse them. I'm trying to curse them, but God keeps changing my, my mouth, and I keep presenting blessings. Read Numbers 25. It's crazy. Um, this is where Balaam's donkey just tells him, would you stop doing this? Um, but finally, what Balaam says is, listen, I can't curse them, but if you go get some Moabite women, you can get perversity and immorality in the camp, and God will judge them for that. So I can't curse them, but I can get some Moabite women who will bring immorality into the camp. When Israel was staying at Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifice to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. Sexual immorality <laughs> led to, hey, you know, yeah, we'll, we want to have a good time. And as we have a good time, it leads you astray from worshiping the Lord. Folks, our, our, our fingers can't be pointing too harshly at the people in the Old Testament when sexual immorality is rampant in our world and in our church and in our lives. Sexual immorality, absolutely rampant. Um, and that sexual immorality draws us away from the Lord. When we are sacrificing our children by the thousands, and, and praise God for the efforts to stop and, and put an end to abortion these days. Um, but we're not innocent. The group that we're talking about today, the Philistines, they're an interesting people. They're probably Greeks. They're called the Sea Peoples. They were leaving um, Greece and, and spreading around the Mediterranean Sea at this point. Uh, the Philistines seemed like they tried to make their first uh, foray into Egypt, and the Egyptians drove them out of Egypt, and they went north out of Egypt and ended up in the, um, the land of Israel, and particularly along the coastline of what we now call the Gaza Strip. They, they inhabited the, the coastal plain, and they had this um, five-city uh, federation of, of Philistine cities. Um, they loved warriors with great weapons. Who's the most famous Philistine in the Old Testament? Anyone know? Goliath. Um, they, they loved champion warfare. They would get their, their um, the Greeks would, would get their armies ready, but what they would love to do is let's send a champion down. And they'd send Goliath and, you know, get your champion. And our champion happens to be a young kid named David with a slingshot. And he wins. Um, Samson is fighting the Philistines too. Samson fits right into the pattern because he's a champion. He's, he's, he's like Goliath. Um, which, by the way, if you're drawing the connections, it's not a good thing. Uh, they love their champions, and they worship Dagon. There's 190 references to the Philistines in the Old Testament. They are everywhere. <laughs> it, they, they are so hard to get rid of. They're like um, black scale on a, uh, on a tree. It's just hard to get rid of these guys. Um, here's what da one of David's encounters with the Philistines. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they went up in full force to search for him. But David heard about it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Raphaim. So David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hands? The Lord said to him, Go, for I will deliver the Philistines into your hands. This is, the Philistines are a perennial enemy for a long, long time. 
But all of them eventually fade off the map. There are no more Amalekites or Ammonites or Moabites or Philistines. They're, they're, they're not around because God did eventually get rid of them all. And one of the ways that he attacked the Philistines, they're going to come back up in our story about Samson, but he does it with Shamgar. And Shamgar fits into this narrative. It's just one verse, but let me just give you two quotes, one by Kenway. He says this, the Shamgar story relates to the previous accounts of Othniel and Ehud because all three bring deliverance, the word salvation. Othniel saves them. Ehud saves them. And uh, Shamgar, it says he saves them because all three bring deliverance to Israel. Shamgar also relates to the following account of Deborah due to the socio-historical parallels with the time of Jael. There's going to be a mention of Shamgar in the Jael story um, when Deborah sings the poem. Uh, you'll see it in just a second. And like the Ehud and Deborah account, Shamgar features the use of a makeshift weapon. Ehud um, uses a, a carved knife that he's hiding and Jael is going to use a tent peg. So we've got these three stories together that have kind of these makeshift weapons. And again, it's because the other guys have disarmed them. They have no tools. They have no weapons with which to fight. So they have to depend on God and use the resources they have. Um, we're being disarmed in many ways as God's people. But we can use the weapons that he's given us, righteous lives and God's word and uh, holy living, teaching our children. Uh, Michelle Knight says, like the narrative that precedes this short aside, depicts an enemy of Israel as a victim of unexpected military force from an unbelievable source, one man with a non-traditional weapon. Um, I mean, here, here they have been surrounded on every side. The Philistines are kind of the final side. And, and in the midst of all that opposition, God raises up um, who I'm going to call an unlikely hero. God often uses obscure and unexpected people to advance his purpose. Um, when you think about it, we all know the name Billy Graham. I mean, he's famous. Everybody knows who Billy Graham is. Do we know the person who led Billy Graham to Christ? It's a very important person. <laughs> obscure, hard, hardly any of us know. But he was faithful to share the gospel. Um, how many of you know the name Richard Kimball? He's the man who led D.L. Moody to Christ. God uses a lot of obscure people. When you read through church history, there are uh, people tucked away in the corners that are doing significant things. Some of them we probably don't know their names. They're so obscure. But we actually happen to know the name of a guy here. Um, one obscure guy, and, and I want you to understand. I, I understand that I, I pastor a church, and I'm the guy who stands up front, but I may not be the most significant. I am likely not the most significant person doing things here today. There are a lot of you who are probably shamgars, that God has some great things for you to do. The question is, will you do them? After Ehud came shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox code. He too saved Israel. End of story. Now what's going to happen in chapter 4 is we're going to get the report of um, Barak being called by the prophetess Deborah to go to war. Barak is reluctant. He says, uh, I'll only go if you go with me. Uh, 
Deborah's going to say, okay, I'm going to go, but now you're not going to get the glory. A woman's going to get the glory. And then this woman named Jael is going to actually be the one who kills the king of the enemy army. We'll talk about this next week. And then after that, in chapter 4, Deborah is going to, with Barak, sing a song to celebrate the victory. And in the middle of the song, she says this, In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned. Travelers took to winding paths. In, in these times when, when you couldn't travel openly, we were hiding in the hills. But God used Shamgar and Jael, obscure people with untraditional gifted weapons. So I don't, I don't know where you're at. I, I know what my weapon is, and I know what I'm supposed to do. What's your weapon? <laughs> Shamgar, Jael, I'm talking to you, every one of you. Shamgar, Jael, where's your tent peg? Where's your ox goat? Get it out and use it for the Lord. Get it out to defeat some enemies. Every single one of us have an opportunity to be used by God. And this guy is, he's not who you would expect, okay? It's going to take me a minute to make, make this point. Um, Bob Chisholm says, Shamgar's name is a foreign, maybe he's Hurrian, maybe even Canaanite, but he's certainly not an Israelite. His identification of a son of Anat has a pagan ring to it, for Anat was the Canaanite goddess of love and war. This guy's, at least his family um, named him and he was connected with um, one of the Canaanite gods of love and war. Now, that, he may have connected himself to that because he was a warrior, but my point here, this guy's not an Israelite. He's either Hurrian or he's maybe even a Canaanite. And, and you may feel like, yeah, but, you know, oh, Ken, you're telling me to, you know, pick up my ox goat and be a Shamgar. But I wasn't raised in a Christian family. Neither was this guy. Um, there's actually arrowheads um, that have been found archaeologically that have son of Anat on them. And it, it may have been a warrior class of people. <laughs> um, but God uses this guy. He, he's an unlikely hero. And not only is he an unlikely hero, he has an unseemly background. God can use people with questionable backgrounds to do great things. I don't know much about this guy, but, but in his name that's reported, he's a son of Anath. That's a pagan god. Now, that may be because there's a city we haven't discovered yet named Anath, and he may be, you know, from there, you know. Uh, but it sure looks like his family has loyalties to a Canaanite god. Greg Wong says this, The account of the next judge, Shamgar, is very brief and reminds one of Samson because of the unusual weapon and the Philistine enemy both share in common. Uh, Samson is going to slay Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. Um, the name Shamgar, son of Anath, however, is of non-Israelite Orion, perhaps Hurrian or Syrian, Although not much else is known about him, his inclusion as one of the judges shows that the Lord uses even non-Israelites to deliver his people. I'm not 100% sure the guy's saved. 
I'm not sure he's a Yahwist. Maybe. But God uses other people. Um, my suspicion is he is. That's why he's, he's kind of rounded out as one of the guys who get us to 12 judges. But he's certainly got a questionable background. Anybody want to raise your hand? You don't have to. I'm really not. But you, you got a questionable background? Anybody have things in your past that you were, weren't there? I'm a son of rebellion, a son of pornography. I'm a, I'm a daughter of promiscuity. Anybody got anything in their past that, you know, you, you wish weren't there? God can still use you. If you feel left-handed like Ehud, if you feel obscure and unqualified like Shamgar, you feel like your past disqualifies you, I'm sorry, I'm putting Shamgar in your face, and I'm telling you, God can use you. Well, you know, I don't have upfront gifts. That's what I hear. I don't have upfront gifts. He uses an unconventional weapon. God, God often uses really unpredictable means to advance his purposes. After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. It's not your, not your typical thing. You may be left-handed Ehud. You may be um, obscure Shamgar. You may be questionable background son of Anath. And you may also say, ah, I don't have the right gifts. I'm sorry, you've got no excuse. Um. If you remember our verse, it starts off after Ehud. Ehud brought in a, a period of peace for fifty or for eighty years. For eighty years, it seems like nothing's going on, except the Philistines are taking all their weapons away. Um, who's not stepping up during all this time? Who are all the people who are sitting on the sidelines until God has to raise up a Shamgar with an ox goad to save his people? Um, again, I like L. Ralph Davis. We don't know anything about Shamgar, and yet he saved God's people. There's something marvelous about a God like that, something that compels us to bow down before the one who uses Shamgars and ox goads. Let me just reiterate again. Um, Othniel... Ehud, Shamgar, our people to come, uh, Deborah and Jael, Gideon, Jephthah, Samson, they're not the heroes of the story. You know who the hero of the story is? The hero of the story is the God who would empower a Canaanite guy with an ox goad who's of questionable background to save his people by destroying 600 Philistines. Ken Younger says, uh, Lawson Younger says this, it's clear from the text of Judges so far that Yahweh will deliver the Israelites from their oppressors. However, it's also clear that his methods may not be so easy to predict or explain. I'm praying for a peaceful day for you, watching the Razorbacks in a calm little setting. Well, the Razorbacks are falling apart. My daughter's in timeout. My husband's gone. 
but I'm listening to the rain by candlelight. God may answer in some very difficult ways. What do I want you to learn from this? God can use obscure people with questionable backgrounds using unconventional means to do great things for him. God uses sham guards with ox goads. He always has, he always will, and he wants to use you. So I don't know how you're trying to deflect being useful for God, but, but I'm, I'm trying to take all your excuses away. You may feel left-handed. You may feel obscure. You may feel like you have a, a, an obscure background. You may feel like you don't have the right gifts. Shamgar, folks. Using an ox goad. God can use obscure people with questionable backgrounds using unconventional means to do great things for him. Now, for the few of you who are sitting there and you're saying, I'm not obscure, I'm pretty amazing. And I have kept myself clean my whole life, and I'm very gifted. Well, get in the game too. (laughs) I'm going to read one thing from Dan Block that actually focuses on me more than anybody else. The dilemma faced by the Israelites in the dark days of the governors is not without parallel in the contemporary church, which is often at the mercy of the world. Dependence on secular business procedures and the methodologies of the social sciences increases in the church as godliness and genuine spirituality among the leaders decrease. But a church that has permitted itself to be squeezed into the mold of the world should not be surprised to find itself hostage to its enemies. If you're playing the world's game, it's going to bite you. The Lord's under no obligation to those who bear his name in vain, those who claim to be the people of God but act like the Canaanites. However, he remains sensitive to the groaning of his people and waits to demonstrate his power and his grace in freeing them from the tyranny of evil and their own foolishness. God is resourceful and often rescues his work through outside agents in spite of his people and their leaders. Um. Let's just stand for the Lord and be a part of the solution, standing against the detestable God that offers and asks for our children to be sacrificed to them. Let's stand against uh, promiscuity, sexual immorality in our world. Let's just stand against it. Rather than God having to force judgment on us. One verse, folks. We just had one verse today. Here's some next steps. Here's the truth. God can use anyone, anywhere, anytime with anything to accomplish his purpose. Do you hear that? God can use anyone, anywhere, anytime with anything to accomplish his purpose. He can use Shamgar with an ox goat and he can use you. So don't sit on the sidelines for 80 years. I don't know what you're waiting for. But don't sit on the sidelines. Get in the game. Find the place where you can serve. Find the place where you can, as we say, serve in your shape. We're not forcing everybody into anything. If you don't know what your shape is, let's sit down. I'll help you try to find it. Your shape is what you love to do, and your heart beats fast because you love doing it. And when you're doing it, other people like it. That's your shape. Do it. And finally, step out. Do something great for God. Step out. Be a shamgar. You may only get, you know, 15 minutes. God may only use you for one little thing. And, and later on, people may sing a song about you like shamgar. But no one knows him. 
He's obscure, but he does something great and he saves God's people. And we have no excuse. The biggest reason we have no excuse is because God loves us and it's, it's his work that qualifies us to be used for him. It's not our qualifications. It's what God has done to redeem us and make us a part of his family. And now as a part of his family, gifted, we can serve him. And that's what we remember today. I'm going to ask you to stand up, and we're going to remember what Christ has done for us. We're going to remember the great work that he did with an obscure person. He didn't come as a king. With a questionable background, very poor parents, with a mom who was accused of getting pregnant out of wedlock, He grew up without a dad, apparently. His dad's not on the scene after we see him at 12 years old. Jesus Christ, not born into a wealthy family, a peasant family. We know that because the sacrifice they made um, when they came up to the temple was the sacrifice poor people made. Questionable backgrounds. Later in his life, the accusation was made, we weren't born of fornication like you. Because your mom was pregnant before her, she married your dad. Questionable background. But he did the greatest work of all. He did the greatest work of all. He, he came, and we're going to remember it today. He came, he took on flesh so that he could lay his life down and shed his blood for us. 